Hey everybody and welcome to the second episode of my podcast Get Back Up with the most beautiful human being Nicole Gibson. She needs no introduction however I will read out her titles. She is an Australian multi-award winning millennial entrepreneur, a former mental health commissioner, a speaker, a transformational facilitator and unifier. What a welcome. Welcome, Nicole. How are you? Thank you so much, Renee. I'm so excited for this conversation. It's always a pleasure with you. I'm so excited to be bringing you on here for more reasons than one. And isn't it interesting how when we introduce people onto a show or onto a podcast, we um, introduce them by their titles? And yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I, I long, and and this this is going to sound um, funny, but and and it's not because <laughs> I don't know how to put this. I long for the time when I can walk onto a show or onto a stage and they just say, this is Renee. There's something that I feel almost um, cringeworthy when they'll say, this is a former, you know, Miss Bikini World, a justice advocate, she's a human rights this, she's done that, and they read out all these special titles and they all sound really good, but it's like, oh. And I, when I'm reading out your titles there, they were rolling off my tongue but what I want to say is I feel like I could have just said, welcome on the show, Nicole. And just because of your energy, your experience, your intention, um, everything about you, you are so much of yourself. I feel like you don't even need those titles. Do you know what I mean? I've always felt that way. So I'm glad I'm not the only one. Every time I've spoken on, on stages or whatever, I, I literally always brush it off as soon as I'm on stage and like forget everything that that person just introduced me with. Because I, I think, you know, and, and maybe this is something that, that we'll get to touch on in our conversation, that these titles actually limit our, our spirit, which, which wants to remain present and, um, yeah, wants to be available to individual expression of each moment. And I think with something as like potent as a title of like a legal advocate or a former mental health commissioner, or these come with so much kind of assumption and bias and all of these things that I see it then as some like walls that we have to like work yes. to break down to get people <laughs> to, to see us when it's meant to be the thing that introduces us. And I, I really don't agree with that. I agree. It was one of the hardest things that I found when I was leaping from, you know, bikini model, dancer, you know, um, and going into a courtroom, like I felt like how dare I because my title was this um, almost, you know, dits and I, I had to earn my stripes so badly like maybe in that bikini world industry where you have that title it's like looked up upon but it's when you go into a different domain you almost it's laughable to you know to the new chapter that you're walking into and and I do understand I mean we should be proud of everything we've done of course but those um, past chapters I think when you get done with them you're done and I know when we're learning 
to connect to people and to build our brand or our image or whatever, we always get told. I don't know if, if you feel the same. I, I, I'd say, you know, from my conversations with you previously, you would, but you, you get told that you've got to have this story and it's got to be a story that people relate to. And it's sort of like, you know, that hero's journey where you have fallen down and you found a way to get up because it's it's what people understand and it's what they can relate to and there's something fantastic about taking everybody through that journey of falling and getting back up is exactly what I'm doing but when you um, get stuck in you know one part of the story it is it is very difficult to actually be present and teach in the present moment it's 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 almost impossible I feel it's that we we start to become defined by that that title and the pressures and the expectations of the title rather than the reason we got the title in the first place. And I think that's the key. And, you know, I, um, I mean, you could look at it in many ways. I see it as a blessing. I'm really grateful for what I experienced so young and that the sort of the trajectory of my journey being a, a teenager that wanted to see this conversation of mental health shift from something that was, just medical and um, and chemical to understanding that there were cultural and environmental implications, which was just not a conversation people were having and thinking like, where do I even begin to have this conversation and, and making the decision to take it upon myself to buy a van and start traveling to communities to just see who is interested in having these conversations to go from that to um, you know, where where my journey took me only a few years later, I actually started to um, lose sight of the the reason I got those titles in the first place. And I think that that's what titles do. I think that's what I, an identity does. Absolutely. And for those people that are listening that have not followed you yet, if I were to, let's say, divide your life up if we could, into let's say quarters, let's just say four pieces, yeah? And if each of those quarters, and I'm just thinking of this on the hop, each of those pieces had a character, okay? So we're literally (laughs) just going chapter one, two, three, and four. What was the character of from birth? So chapter one, what was the character chapter two, chapter three, and up to right now in the present moment is chapter four. If you could, and whether that be titles or lessons that you learned or big things that happened, like I know for myself, when I go over the timeline of my life, I can literally like, there are big things that happened that might be, you know, um, giving birth to my son or starting my first business or, you know, we've got these big landmarks that happen. And I know that you've been, you've had extremely high highs and low lows. So I just want to paint, I guess, a simple story and speak to um, the characters or the roles, if you like, that you played um, during those chapters. This is such an interesting way of asking this question. I I love it and I've never thought about it in this frame before. Um, Yeah, okay. So I guess chapter one of of four as a child would have been, um, uh, I guess, the theme in all of the chapters I think has been, except for this last one, rebellion. I was a very like defiant child 
very strong-willed um but deep deeply needed to be uh like loved and um would demand affection constantly as a child and had um relatively British parents so um it created you know I think a lot of the personality that people probably know me for today like someone that's very bold but also very sensitive at the same time I think that was definitely there from the very beginning um and traveled a lot with my family from a very young age so um yeah just many many different schools a lot of moving around um a lot of different homes and houses and also grew up in a lot of um privilege in many ways uh and felt the sort of expectation and, and the pressures of that world and that society even as a a very little kid and then chapter two I guess um was most defined by me um after having gone to about 10 schools at that point deciding this really isn't for me and at 14 I I left a mainstream school to pursue a performance so as a theater major and that was like my my first love so I guess chapter two was like pursuing my first ever love affair with with performance and I majored in a method of acting called Meisner which I also think was very defining to, to who I am because Meisner as an art looked at acting not as acting but as being 100% yourself under the given imaginary circumstances so it was there where I immersed myself in that world that I think I really started to learn spirituality without meaning to. It wasn't taught to us as, as spirituality, but I look back now and I had this affinity. I was obsessed with wanting to dive so deeply into that art form that it completely encapsulated me. And I look back and ask myself why. And I think it was because um, Meisner acting forces you to see yourself as the character in those circumstances so the way that you're trained is by having your ego quite literally and sometimes quite brutally broken down by your director so that any kind of identity or belief system or judgment or resistance that you have to seeing yourself as say the liar as the cheater as you know the the murderer whatever is challenged deeply challenged until you actually find that very real part of you that is capable of those things and going through that experience myself gave me this insatiable fascination with with what it means to be human and and what identity actually is and actually how much identity truly is a choice is not who we are identity is a choice and a, and a series of behaviors that under the right circumstances anyone could actually be propelled to choose and that gave me this like very different I guess perspective on life simultaneously I was trying to be this identity which was so ironic like I'd go into rehearsal and have my identity stripped and then the rest of the time I was trying to to be the best and get ahead in that industry at a very young age and that came with a lot of complications that ultimately impacted my mental health and led me down the road of a life-threatening battle with anorexia and um long story short I, I had to actually ask myself the question at a very young age am I prepared to die for this identity am I prepared to die for my ego um and thank god the answer was no um, and so I had to make a decision at 17, year, 17 years old to choose life. 
And that was probably the most defining part of chapter two because it made me realize that many people are alive, but not many people have actually chosen to live, to, to, to truly choose life and what happens when you choose life and the doors that start to open up to you and for you and the courage that you begin to have access to when you ultimately confront your fear of death um, and accept death. And then chapter three was um, just this, this phenomenal quest. And I would say I've only just started chapter four. I would say that that chapter three was from, from the moment I chose life all the way through to probably last year was just this quite amazing decade of my life where I just completely devoted myself to my cause being um, love. And up until COVID, I, I never was in one place longer than about two weeks because I just traveled consistently to disenfranchised communities all the way, um, eventually traveling the world, spreading my message, working with communities, being a political advocate, um, being a consultant, creating social movements. And so it was this um, experience of just completely losing myself in, in a message that was bigger than me. And I think only recently have I entered a phase or a chapter in my life where I've been forced to completely come back to myself and ask, you know, who do I truly want to be? Um, before I continue to, who do I want to be in my own personal life, which was always the thing that came second, um, before I continue to give, you know, me to the world. So what I hear when you tell me that timeline, I feel like you went through that massive experience in chapter two by the sounds of it. And that's such a deep and profound experience to have while you're a teenager and while you're still developing. And then to learn the lesson and to straight away spring into putting it into play, what stands out for me, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is true for me, is that when we go through hardship and when we go through trauma, a knee-jerk response to that can often be, I really want to pad the fall or I want to... Um, light the path for other people that are about to walk down this same dark road because my goodness I wouldn't wish this upon anyone so part of being in service I feel can be a trauma response and part of it is genuinely I've learned something here and anyone coming up behind me I really want to show them the way because it's I know how hard it is so as you as you um, lay those chapters out I feel like how can you not go through what you went through um, with your eating disorder and with your, I mean, even the amount of schools. I didn't know that about you, that you went to so many schools. And, and I know that rolls off your tongue really easily, but I know from my personal experience, I only changed schools once. And I can tell you it was one of the single most traumatic things that ever happened to me. And I don't even how can you say changing schools is traumatic? And and I know when um, my son went to change schools, I said, oh, you know, honey, I'm so sorry. And he's like, what do you mean? And he said, oh, I'm so excited. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I get double the friends. I get the friends that I had at the old school and I get the friends that I'm getting. Like he's, he's, um, 
his um, courage to leap into it was just phenomenal. But because my experience was changing schools was completely completely traumatic I still to this day when you just said to me that you changed schools 10 times and then it's almost like the next minute you're out waving the flag mental health commissioner saving the world doing all these amazing things I'm like hang on a minute I'm sorry I'm just stuck back at you changed schools 10 times let alone what Mm. came after that so what I want to know is leading in to that third chapter where you were being of service and you did you know have this wonderful organization and I know you did such great things um what part of that was trauma what part of that was creating a sellable character you know and you go back to your acting you talk about your acting and um I loved acting when I was at school. The only time I felt like I was truly myself was when I was in the school play. So I really relate to what you say when you talk about drilling down into the character. But I wonder when you um, moved from that between those chapters, when you went into service, yeah, what part do you feel was trauma and what part was I'm really being guided here? Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is a very uh, multifaceted question. Let me just shut the window so we don't get that noise. Um, and yeah, thank you for asking this question because it's not um, it's not a question that many people ask because I think people want to focus on the on the hero story. They want to focus on well, it must have just been like, you know, you, you made that decision and then everything was just uh, like victory. And I think like Australia as a nation treated me that way, that I would I became like a, a golden child of the mental health conversation, which was an immense amount of pressure that I didn't, I didn't realise I was under because I have this tendency to um, take on responsibility just without even realizing I'm doing it, which I think is a consequence of how I grew up going through all of those changes, being, I think, mum's security in a lot of ways through those changes. I was so used to taking on responsibility and just needing to, you know, change schools and deal with it. And if I didn't deal with it, then I was a bad kid, you know, It it sounds brutal, but that's how I felt. I'm not saying that that's what my parents intended, but that was the responsibility I was always wearing on my shoulders. And, um, you know, fast forward being an 18 year old, um, very rapidly moving from uh, a startup grassroots social entrepreneur to being one of six advisors to a $40 billion budget, being flown business class uh, around the world to consult to some of the most significant personalities in mental health of course, that's going to come with with a shadow and, and a dark side. And I didn't realise that at the time because I wasn't conscious of just how critical that voice in my head actually was. Um, you know, I, I would have days because I was also speaking and my speaking career was um, growing very rapidly uh, as well. And I would have days that where I had been around thousands of people that day, you know, speaking on some of the biggest stages in the world, doing book signings where, where people would literally be like grabbing my body, like in many different directions, like putting books in my face, buying 10 books for all different people in their life and telling me their life story and wanting me to write a personal message to every single person in their life. 
I remember Renee this one moment and it was a very pivotal moment for me that it was a 40 degree day in Australia and I had just been under stage lights for 90 minutes giving my keynote and I did a three hour book signing much to that nature and about 90 minutes in I was so dehydrated and I had to pee so badly and the anxiety that I felt because of the amount of stimulus around me at telling people I need a break, I need to go to the bathroom right now, like I'll be back, was so immense that I couldn't actually bring myself to do it. And someone from the crowd bought me a glass of water and I just remember thinking that is the kindest thing ever. Like I just just remember thinking that that is so, like I was so emotional that this person would, would hand me uh, a glass of water and actually see me as a human being and and potentially see and not only see but but value that the suffering that I might have been in in that moment and not just see me as an object that's going to help them and and help them solve all of their problems like I was I was a kid you know and and these people were twice sometimes thrice my age looking to me to be the the savior I think in in many ways um, but I didn't have the the language because I just wanted to to love. So I think through all of that, you know, um, I would go through those days and then I'd go back to my hotel room and it would just be silent and trying to integrate, you know, those experiences and, and trying to, I think my way of dealing with it, which was very true to my battles with my mental health when I was, even younger was to just compartmentalize. I just compartmentalized everything. That's that. And this is this, and I'm here now and everything was in a box and everything was neat and tidy and trying to um, be in the messiness of how much things had actually impacted me was, was very challenging. And I actually felt like it wasn't something that anyone really wanted me to sort of open up anyway, because it was much nicer me being that hero on, on a stage than um, me being uh, potentially still impacted by the immense amount of struggle I went through as, as a teenager. Things will always leave scars. And yet that's the very human perspective. And, and the other side of it was I had a call on my heart that like you shared in, in our interview um, before was a compulsion I couldn't not do it. I had many people in my life say to me, you're so young, just wait till you've had a career and then choose philanthropy. You know, like I had all of these kind of opinions, give back later on this, this time you need to focus on you. You need to focus on, you know, yourself. You've just come out of this very um, life-threatening situation. And I just couldn't hear it. There was something in my heart and something in my gut that was so on fire um, and I couldn't rest, you know, it's, it's what I woke up thinking about. It's what I went to bed thinking about. I remember trying to sit through uni lectures when I, when I, um, when I first left the academy. Um, and I just, I, it, all of it was meaningless. That's how it felt. It's like, none of this means anything to me. I just want to do what I know I'm, I'm meant to do. And I have no regrets because that a thousand percent was my path. Um, but I guess if I was to give, a perspective, I think, to everyone that maybe looks to a, a figure 
as someone that has it all figured out or is the savior, or maybe it is you and you're listening and you've been put in that position before you are a human. (laughs) You have things that are affecting you that you're probably not even conscious of. And every single person needs space to fuck up, to make mistakes. I consistently found myself in situations, even in my personal relationships, because I was the mental health commissioner, because I was the CEO of a mental health charity. If I couldn't fix the problems of people close to me, I was judged as a hypocrite. And I look back now and I actually, I still get a little bit passionate and angry and protective of that past version of myself because the the binary thinking in that, you know, that if someone is a, a CEO of a mental health charity, then they're not worthy of that position unless they know how to fix every single mental health problem in the world. Otherwise like, they're a fraud. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What the fuck is that thinking? Like yeah. I was, I was a 20 year old trying to understand dating, trying to understand relationships constantly had pressure on me from my from the people I would choose to be with some of my closest friends that if I couldn't um, be perfect in in line with what they thought the mental health commissioner should be you know 24 hours a day seven days a week 365 days a year I was judged as as a hypocrite yep and then you create the love out loud movement now to me from the outside looking in all this expectation mental health commissioner and judgment possibly and then you you start this movement that sounds very safe because if we're selling love who the heck is going to come for the jugular if you're selling peace light love crystals and let's all just be one happy family <laughs> isn't that um, in itself, I mean, I, I look at your journey and I think it is so the same but so the opposite because what I was standing for when I was going through my let's call it justice journey chapter, you know, <laughs> I'm out there going this is diseased, this is corrupt, I'm going to bring it to a head, I'm going to bring them to their knees. <laughs> Like I'm going, I'm like an attack dog and you're out there going, guys, let's not judge. Let's speak from a place of love. Let's all come together and let's all unify. I still very much believe that message. Of course, of course. But like myself, when you're out there um, sparking, you know, spruiking, I should say, justice, people are going to say, well, you're not being fair about this or you're not being fair about that. You come into scrutiny. And of course, you're out there spruiking love and it's a beautiful thing. And I say spruiking and I feel like I'm almost cheapening it by saying (laughs) I was spruiking justice and you're spruiking love. But that's, (laughs) do you know what I mean? That's what we were doing. And yet, um, when you, when you are doing those things, I think they are the things that you get most tested on. So when you're out there selling love, love light and Mm. forgiveness and happiness, tell me about what happens when, because uh, each person always, you know, you, you tell people, oh, I believe in forgiveness. And then they go, oh, but 
you know, I've got this one story. I've got no, like, I understand that you've got to forgive, but no, you've got to hear what this person did or you've got to hear what they said or you're not going to believe what happened here. Like, and they'll give you a reason of why they can't forgive. Okay, so um, it'll be the same with this justice-style stories. Um no, you know, but there's but there's just this one thing. There's one thing that's so unjust, and it's like no, there's nothing you can say to me anymore. So, with selling love, how many times have you been confronted by situations or things or relationships or anything where you're just like, wow, I'm out here spruiking love. How can I possibly respond to this? with love when this is what this person's doing or saying or you know how do you drill down and dig deep into the main thing you're selling when someone is really really uh trying to put you off course easy questions Renee. easy questions (laughs) um yeah this is potent this question you know what do I want to say to this Fundamentally, we cannot give what we don't have. And I I think my journey with Love Out Loud has really taught me that because going into Love Out Loud, like just a bit of context, I when I when I wrote the book, and that's how the movement began, is I wrote I wrote the book and I um I was twenty-four. 23, 23, 24, I'd held a a federal position as a commissioner for four years. I'd grown a a national charity across 300 communities in Australia. Um, And I was the Pride of Australia medalist. I was a finalist for the Young Australian of the Year. I was Financial Review's top 100 most influential women by the time I was 21. That was the front face. The, the background or backstage. What as, was as you going on backstage? It. That's what I want to know. Yeah. And, and honestly, it's not, it's not, I do a lot of interviews and I don't um, often talk about this, but I think chapter four is, is maybe starting to, to, to dig deeper into some of that, some of that shame and, and hopefully, you know, it, it will help some people who, who are listening um, because we can be given the world. At least this is what I've learned multiple times in my journey um we can be given the world but if we're not ready to receive it you know it, it's just um it it's gonna slip through our hands like uh like grains of sand quite literally until we until we build the internal landscape to truly be able to feel worthy and uh, not even feel worthy fuck that to be worthy we have to be worthy of of the things that we are claiming and and the things that we are I'm asking for in life. I I don't like these messages, which is like to say affirmations and feel worthy. It's like, no, you've got to develop yourself to to become worthy. And if it's not enough just to think that you are, Um, because I've definitely been there too. Um, Backstage, I was 23 dealing with all the things that every other 23-year-old deals with. No, toxic relationships, um, recreational drug use, um, I was, I was drinking a lot on weekends and I'd never, I'd never done that until I, um, had to hit this point. And I look back now and I, I realized that I started 
doing those things on the weekend, going to festivals, getting lost in those sorts of environments because I had so much pressure on my shoulders that I just needed a fucking break. And I needed to enter a space, um, you know, psychologically where I felt equal to my peers because none of my peers understood what I was going through um, in my week. Like I was the person that communities would call and say, hey, Nicole, we've had five more suicides this month, come and fix the problem. And I would go and live in the community and, and listen. My whole world was just listening to people's suffering and using one of my gifts, which I truly do think is one of my gifts. I have this ability to solve problems in a very divergent way. So I would listen and listen and listen, and then I would bring the community together and facilitate a solution. Um, and so I was taking on a lot constantly you know, and um, I didn't know how to decompress. I didn't know how to regulate. I can really and... relate to that. As you're talking, I'm just like, yes, 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 yes. No, <laughs> I, I'm going, I'm trying to picture at that point while you're doing that, how you're able to say no to people. Hmm. Yeah, well, I, I didn't because and it felt so genuine and it, it's not that it felt genuine it was genuine but because I I wasn't regulating like so the way that I was working um through the foundation and as a community consultant and even as, as a commissioner but mostly in those two two first roles um the way that I was charging um so the way that I structured my work is I would go and literally immerse myself because to me it was the only way that I could truly be of service because I could see these kind of traveling psychologists and these consultants that would go in for like you know a, a couple of hours or whatever and it was just all bullshit they, it was so surface level they never got to the bottom of anything and I, I understood what it's like to be at rock bottom like at, at the depth of my eating disorder I was defeated and I so badly needed help and no one, even those that were saying they were there, really had what it took to lean fully into that situation and be an anchor for me to start to figure out how I needed to orient myself to a place of, you know, functionality again. I didn't have the, I didn't have that. And so I knew what it was, uh, I knew what was needed, you know, to, to be that. And, and I was that for communities. So I would charge by the day and these communities, that meant that they would come, my, my community liaison would come and pick me up at 6 a.m. I'd do breakfast meetings and I'd work all the way through to, to evening events, Q and A's. I would stay behind after the Q and A's, listen to people's life stories. I'd get back to you know, my, my motel or whatever, usually at, at 11 p.m., maybe midnight, and then do it again day after day after day after day. And then after maybe two or three weeks of being away, can't believe I'm sharing this, I would come home and I would usually catch the, the Friday night flight home. And what was I going to say to my girlfriend? You know, like she, she was working like a, a normal job. What was I going to say to to actually like try and find some point of relatability. So I, I was so sick of trying that I think I just chose to 
write myself off, ah. get to a place where it just was like, I don't give a fuck. I don't want to be understood. I don't care. I give no fucks. I'm just going to be completely in this. If I'm going to, I'm going to get intoxicated to a point that no one expects me to hold space because I literally can't hold space because I, I didn't know how to put those boundaries in place. Probably, you know, the healthy version was I need time to decompress. These are my needs. Please, you know, try and meet my needs. But because I didn't know how to say that, just like the the book signing example I gave you, um, I didn't know how to say, hey, I need a break right now. I felt so guilty and, and so um, just anxious at the thought of voicing my boundaries because of the responsibility I'd been carrying that that became my outlet. And so I would do that all weekend and then I'd get on a plane and do it all again. And I was in this cycle to a point where I realized this is the backstage version. There were also many legitimate front stage versions why I made the decision to transition into um, creating Love Out Loud because I think culture, it, it illuminated itself to me that culture was one of the, the key ways that we need to drive change. And I, I didn't just want to work in policy anymore. I wanted to create culture. So that was yeah, my, because I do my want front. To, can I just interrupt there when you say on <coughs> policy? Because I'm imagining that you've gone through these huge experiences and they're deep and they're profound and you've had to become your own anchor. And then I, I know from from my point of view, when you look at politicians or when I look at politicians I don't know what other people see but I hear a tone in their voice I see a look on their face and I there's something so vacant about many of them um yeah. and and whether you call somebody the health minister or the or the um you know the what I can't even understand is you look at these particular ministers and they'll go from being <laughs> this still blows my mind. So yeah. they'll be the health, health minister, minister to the education. To the education. <laughs> and it's like, hang on a minute. If your Renee, passion I used to sit I used to sit in these meetings. I just cannot I mean I don't I don't want to defame anybody, but No, like, that's where I, I was I gonna go with this. How did you sit amongst something that is so I was I, I just couldn't I, I'm grateful that I was as young as I was because I think if I if I did it now my understanding like I was still learning what it meant to be an adult you know like I didn't I was looking at these people more just like baffled in curiosity like I had so much innocence I was like why are they not never asking how each other are like no one is connected oh this so you saw like that you you did see that at the time hundred percent. Yeah. But I didn't, I didn't understand why, you know, I didn't yeah. understand that they'd lived a life that probably left them feeling completely vacant and soulless. I was just like, I just was like, why is it like this? Like I just genuinely was kind of like so bewildered in, in curiosity. And I look back and think the, the, what was projected onto me as a, as a young not only was I a young female and I don't really believe in glass ceilings, even though, you know, statistically I, I understand that they're a thing. I think ultimately I choose to believe we create our own reality. Um, but those projections are real, but I didn't see them because I was just kind of in my innocent understanding of everything. Um, and I, I look back and I was 
I was a commissioner on the basis of my lived experience for starters, which was the first time ever they had chosen to appoint a commissioner based on lived experience. Before that, it was also it was always because of uh, your professional um you know, experience, you were like, had been a psychiatrist or you had worked in the health department. And here I was basically a teenage young female commissioner with the same, like the same status that these other 60 year old professionals had based on the fact that I was advocating, we need to listen to people that have actually been through mental illness. If we're going to get anywhere in driving the right policy forward, and for sure, I triggered the fuck oh, out yeah. of many of them, you know, but I, I didn't, I, again, like, because I take on responsibility, I think I always left, which probably drove me to some of my recreational choices, thinking, like, is it me? Because I couldn't understand where that might have been coming from in them. And I do take on everything. I've had to learn to, to actually be like, no, that's not my stuff. I have pure intentions here. You know, I don't have to leave these meetings feeling like there's something wrong with me or feeling insecure or like I'm a bad person or like I need to go and look at myself. Um, but I didn't get that. So I was you, always just... Did you believe that... Did you believe the facade? Because for me, I, up until the very, very, like, just near the end of my sort of justice chapter of my life, I had this belief. It's so bizarre. I just... I remember thinking... Um, if you've got a problem with police, you go to the Crime and Corruption Commission and, you know, or, or, or you, you know, you, you report it to the police and they get their people to investigate it and they investigate themselves. And I genuinely, I think I we, we really want to believe that it's so deeply ingrained in us as children um, what these people are and what their roles are and what they're supposed to do and what they're supposed I to stand. I never had that with authority. Yeah. I never, I, ever yeah. had that. And you know... But you know why? Because of what I went through with myself. Yeah, of course. I had, I had all of these authority figures tell me, we know what's best for you, but I would look at them in the... I would be a patient in the waiting room, you know, as a 16-year-old, very fragile, 40 kilos, like not okay... And I'd be sitting in a waiting room with, you know, 10 other 40 kilo teenage girls just looking so lost with their their families, basically just being numbers in the system. Mm. And, I, you know, so, so quiet that you could hear the clock ticking in the waiting room. And I'd just watch the doctor's behavior, yep. right? Patient, they may as well just have been like patient, six, four, five, nine, you know, come into my office now, go in, come out. No one was feeling relief, you know, when they walked out of that doctor's office. No one was feeling better. It was just this, this revolving door of sickness, this revolving door of the problem. With, you know, the solution was this enforcement in this case, but I think this is like an example an example of how all of these systems and institutions ultimately work when when the bureaucracy becomes more important than the people the bureaucracy is meant to be serving. Um, and I would just think like weight gain is not a win here. You know, that's that's not the a win is for these girls to feel like they truly love themselves. A win is for them to feel empowered to take health 
back into their own hands, to not feel like they're fighting their parents, not feel like they're fighting the system, to not feel like they're fighting themselves. No one was receiving that. And I, I had to make a decision in that, you know, environment to, to actually, even though I was being told by these people that I didn't feel were connected to me at all or present to what I was going through or the suffering that I was in, I was being told that whatever you think you need right now is a delusion because of your mental illness, which, mm. which still to this day is my biggest fear, that what I think is right for me is delusional. Mm. I, I still fight that demon still to this day. But that was a very strong fear at that time. So many people and... are going to relate to that, you know. How many people <laughs> think, is this real or is this just part of my meltdown, part of my stress, part no. of my insecurity, part of my fear, part of my trauma? What part of this is real? Because perspective is yeah. such a unique um, yeah. lens. But li listen to this. If, if you are relating, you've got to get to a point, and I really i am speaking from my heart to yours, where you – throw away the need to get that decision right and you make a decision that which is the decision I made even if I'm completely delusional I would prefer to follow that delusion than get trapped in the hellhole that is created through these institutions I would prefer to be you know crazy and segregated than involved in what this stands for yeah. And that sounds extreme, it's not. but that's where I had to get to. And the, the second I made that decision was, and I mean it, the second my body and my mind started to heal. Mm. People need to know that because when you are outnumbered, you know, in any yes. scenario, it is so confronting and so difficult to find an anchor. And the first thing that you want to do is just find <clears throat> some point of center or somebody like that you can grip onto that can hold you still for a minute because you don't know what's true and what's not, what's real and what's not. And the, the disorientation of that feeling, I just think is possibly the scariest thing that I've ever experienced is not knowing where am I, who am I, what am I, what's happening, where's happening. Like it's just, it, it is, you're in such a, an abyss. Um, and I think many people experience this with whether they're changing through like their life's evolving and they're learning new things or whether they've got mental health challenges or whether they're, like there's so many different reasons we can feel that way. But if yeah. there is, um, if we could normalise that, if we could normalise that, because I think part of the fear when your head does that is thinking this is not normal, like, or mm. am I ever going to come out of it? Like what, what yeah. you know, what happens? And, and as you're talking and you're talking about these different leaders that you met with, I, I really can imagine it would have taken enormous, um, not just resilience, but determination to um, really find truth when you're surrounded by people with so many masks. Like I, I know when I was surrounded by those same types of figures that you're talking about, I started to get quite desperate, and I want to use the word desperate, desperate 
to speak authentically. And I remember this afternoon I went to meet this um, because, you know, you go, you've got a problem with the health, you see the health minister or in, in my case with the police, so you see the police minister. And if the police minister doesn't do anything, you think, oh, I'm going to go to the shadow minister, right? I'm really going to get you good. I'm going to go right to the shadow minister and he's going to absolutely sink you. And then you go on this revolving thing and you realise, oh, wow, this is a pantomime. Like, they, they yeah. do they really care about health? Do they really care about justice? And I remember walking into the shadow police commissioner's office for a meeting and he said, um, well, I don't know about your, you know, expectations, Renee, how high they are this afternoon or, you know, I, I'm not sure where your mind's at with, with regard to what, you know, you think that um, I can do. And I said, oh, no, make no mistake. My expectations are really low. They're really low. And then and then he, I didn't think he knew what to do with that or where to take it, but I was just up to pussy's bow with the bullshit, right? And so we sit, I sit through the meeting. I'm telling him this guy's got brain damage. He's been bashed to a pulp. You know, the person that's bashed him, the officer that had bashed him had had like 28 previous assault complaints. None of those complainants knew each other. Like we've got to not only save people from being bashed, but this officer, he needs he needs help. He's bashing people. He's yeah. gonna. He's going to kill someone. This is not just about saving the people. It is, but it's also about saving this guy from himself because he's obviously hurting to be lashing out that yeah. bad. And I, I'm really drilling down into this, and he basically said to me, "You know, the other party get all this funding, and really, if we had more funding, and started talking, like you know, politics." And I, I was just like, it dawned on me. I was like, why am I taking? Why am I just expecting something real out of some – they don't just have a costume on. Like, they've got layers of costumes. Why am I thinking yeah. that I'm going to, like, pull the mask off? And, and, and they're, not, they're not awake to it. No, they're not. You know, they're, they're, not, they're, not, they're not awake to what they're, they're living. And so that's, like, that's the biggest point of compassion is it's not like they're waking up every day. And I truly mean this, guys. Like – it is so easy to get angry at politicians. It's so easy to get mm. angry. And I, I really get it. Like I fucking get it. <laughs> but these people are, are not waking up thinking, all right, today I'm going to live a lie. Like I'm going to live a lie. I'm going to put on this mask. And, you know, like the, it, it has, your life is very rarely defined. Sometimes it is, but very rarely defined by single choices. It is the the incremental choices or the things that you don't choose day in, day out, over weeks, months, years, decades, where you find yourself in a position where you're like, I don't even know how I got here or why I'm here. And and that is how most people, especially like, you know, I'm I'm assuming many of your listeners are Aussie. Most politicians, specifically in Australia, have political careers. Mm. Think about that. They're, they're not they're not former CEOs. They're not former. They haven't had industry experience. Ninety eight percent of them have had political careers. They studied, you know, IR at uni or commerce at uni, and they went straight into politics. Or they were in the Young Liberals at uni, and it, it was a political career all the way through to the peak of their career. And so that is all they have ever known. 
And you want to believe. I know, but you want to believe. We want to believe because people call them leaders and because they're making decisions. We deeply want to believe that it's different. And I know that day when I walked out of that office, he said to me, he said, "Um, well, I hope I at least met your low expectations, Miss Eves. And I said, (laughs) oh, no, wait, you went actually so much lower than what I even expected. And he was just like, is she joking? (laughs) Like he just didn't even know how to take me and I was dead serious. I was like, no, what you just delivered then was absolute pass. And I, I couldn't stand, I couldn't, I could not within myself, I couldn't bring myself to say, well, thanks anyway. Cause I I had no thanks. I couldn't (laughs) smile. I couldn't, it was, it was like, I just wanted to give him the international finger from the fast lane. Like I'm out of here, mate. That's a joke. Like I, I, I was desperately, desperately seeking Susan, trying to, and wanting to use an authentic voice. And this is very much why I'm creating this platform is I want to bring an authentic message about what it feels like when you fall down, how you fall down, like how it happens, like do you know what I mean, and and how you get back up again because I I also believe that um, trauma can cause – um, can cause us to catastrophize. So we – instead of something just becoming, okay, I'm just going to fall down and that's going to be cool because I'm going to get back up. When, it is the end of the world. Exactly. <laughs> when the when when a fall has been the, the, the first of a... Well, it's, it's the fall from grace. Yeah. When there's been that's, a really big fall. Yeah. And and it's it's the fear, like let's let's unpack that because I think it's very valuable for people. When we feel like that fall is going to be the end of the world and I've been there very, very much where you're so much of you is caught up, you know, in, in that thing that you're about to lose so much of who you are and how you've defined yourself is entangled with that thing, you know, and it's very important to remember that what is for us will not pass us, you know, like we will, we will never lose what is truly ours. It's very important to remember that and something that I've had to continually learn on my journey, but it's the crash, the fall from grace is, is the ego death, is that part of us that has to be reminded, oh, you were never that thing. You were never that title. You were never that, you know, possession. You were never that relationship. And you've got to literally relearn who you are in that process. Yeah, and then when you just think you've got that worked out and you become that person and you've got all the costumes sorted, the next character's coming in. <laughs> That's what I yeah, feel. Yeah, it's I, just get used to the fact that that's actually how it's designed. The, the second that you get comfortable, the second you get comfortable in like, this is who I am, you know, is, is going to be the same second the universe, God starts to conspire to, to shake that up because you're never meant to settle as one thing. Life is a continual, you know, unfolding until the day that we die and, and, like I, I I know one of the things that I'm now reflecting on in in the the, the fourth chapter of of my life to break it up like that is 
you never actually get to an age where you're like, oh, yeah, I'm an adult now. I figured it out. Like, there's, you know, all those things that you think as a kid when you look towards your future and you think, I'm just going to get to an age and everything's just going to be sorted. You know, I'm going to have, I'm going to have it all and it, I'm going to have it all figured out. You, you never arrive there. Doing the work that I've done as, as a facilitator and a consultant, I've held spaces for 75 year olds who have never looked at themselves ever self-reflected reflecting for the first time in their life at 75 it's a never-ending journey it absolutely is and there's so many people at the moment i know that they feel like they're falling what would be your message um because you know i know i know this is a very broad question but what do you think would be something incredibly helpful to someone that's right now their career is pretty much no longer because of what's going on in the world so you know they have to change careers there's a divide in their family over what they should or should not do you know regarding what's going on in the world and I'm using those word I'm tiptoeing around that basically so that we don't get um you know gagged on social media but I'm sure people can read between the lines what I mean is that so they're, pe- they're people that are losing, you know, the, 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 the safe career. Um, they're, they've got divide in their family over what's right or what's wrong or how they should be responding to what's going on. Um, they might be going through a relationship breakup at the same time. They're then dealing with an addiction They've got children to look after. Like you start layering these things up and, and and there are a lot of people hurting. And I know that one fall down um, can spook a lot of people into thinking, oh, my goodness, is this a snowball? Like am I about to like go down like a stack of, you know, cards, a stack of dominoes? Am I about to literally just come tumbling down? What am I going to do? And they're scrambling and they're scrambling to get some sort of safe ground. Yeah, control, control, exactly. What can we share with people that are just so overwhelmed with the uncertainty and the judgment and the fear and the just multi-layered trauma that's going on right now? What, What can we give them? Listen up, y'all. This is it. This time, as much as it's about you in your life and what you're losing and the career that's fallen through and the house that you've had to remortgage, as much as it's about all of those things, and I don't want to discount or discredit how painful and significant those things are that many individuals, including myself, have journeyed through, you know, challenges in business and i I had a 20 country world tour last year that got canceled like that. You know, all of us have a story over the past couple of years. What we need to bring our attention to is the opportunity that we have, unlike no other, to start to unearth and bring to the surface all of the corruption, all of the evil that has been underneath in our society you know, in in the human consciousness, unconsciousness. We have an opportunity right now to actually choose to look at this experience as the ultimate 
um, opportunity to actually start to purify and purge these things out of the way that we exist as human beings. And it's going to take each of us looking towards a much bigger narrative that all of us are writing together. Because imagine a world where we don't need to go to the nine to five grind. Imagine a world where we don't have, this is to go really big picture. And I feel like your audience are probably maybe already open-minded enough to start thinking about this, where we don't have centralized systems, where we can actually look to new systems of finance, new systems of education, new systems of entrepreneurship, that serve abundantly everyone, not just very few people, very few powers. This is a real opportunity that we have right now. And, and as we can see, the world is, is getting pushed into a divisive narrative. And really, we need to look at it in a very different way because the people that are pushing that agenda, the leaders that are pushing that agenda, ultimately just want data and control and it's very totalitarian. So in order to balance that out, we need to actually let go of those things that most of us didn't even like anyway in our previous lives that we complained about day in, day out, every single day. And we need to come together and actually start thinking, hey, I'm a human being. I have an immense ability to think divergently, entrepreneurially. I am by nature a problem solver. I need to start opening my mind to not just rely on the system that once was, but actually be part of creating an entirely new system. And I, I don't say this lightly, I truly believe this is the opportunity that all of us have right now, especially those who have access to laptops and phones and communication and new forms of currency, all of these things, we can start to build a completely new earth. And it was going to take something like COVID. It was always going to take something like a global pandemic to really activate that potentiality for us as a species. And it's needed. We need a shift in consciousness if we're really going to tackle all of the crises, which, you know, on, on a big, uh, bigger, from a bigger perspective, are much more significant, even though this is probably controversial to say, than just COVID, from ocean acidification to the environment to the mental health crisis to um, the, what we're going to see unfold in our economy over the next few years because of the amount of debt that's been accumulated. These things cannot be solved with the same thinking that we were in in 2019. We need to be initiated into an entirely new level of consciousness to be able to really tackle these problems. And for that reason, COVID has been a gift. Mm. It, you know... I think there's a silver lining and it's going to take it's going to take a long time and some people may never see that silver lining and some people of course will see the blessing in disguise of course if you're personally affected it's so hard especially when you're going through it or you've just gone you know to to say to someone that might have lost a loved one or their entire life savings or what to say oh there's a silver lining but but the bigger picture to the way the world is going to be and the way we're all going to exist, that is the silver lining. It's that, you know, a lot of individuals have fallen um, and have suffered as a result. There's people that are, you know, separated from their loved ones and, and like, there's, there's no, there's, it's, there's no, 
end in sight. And and what I want to what I want to do is I want to give people ideas about how they can I guess yeah get back up from feeling so low about what's going on. So what is like a single easy thing that comes to your mind that people can do? They get up tomorrow and they're like, I've got the weight of the world on my shoulders. I miss my husband or my grandma or my kids, um, the borders, or um, I don't agree with, you know, the restrictions that are in my state or anything like that. Like what can people do tomorrow, starting from now, after they listen to this podcast, what can they do to get relief and what can they do to just at least get up another step? If not, you know, start going up the entire staircase, just at least the first step. What can they do? Yeah. Yeah, we need to take control back over our thoughts. That's, that is step one. <laughs> and I mean, there's many sub steps to that. But start to assess how much input, you know, like we talk about dieting as only a, um, a nutritional thing, but I think dieting needs to be extended across anything that we're putting into our minds and bodies. Begin there because when you're having all of this input from, you know, people's opinions around you, even people that love you um, through to the media, social media, you know, so on, Joe Bloggs opinion at the coffee shop, whatever it is, all of that is ultimately free rent in your mind. Mm. So if you want to create a different reality, you need to start thinking different thoughts. It's like the ba- the basis 101. And if you're at a point, you know, of mastery where you can be in the face of all of those opinions and hold your own perspective and hold your own viewpoint, then okay. But if you're at the very beginning of that journey and you feel con- completely inundated and overwhelmed consistently and you can't even remember the last time you thought an original thought and I want you to become conscious to that because I can't tell you how many times in LA this year people would come up to me angry about masks or whatever and and literally say lines like I don't wear my mask for for me I wear it for you as if that was their thought and there's literally signs all over LA that have that written all over the sign but people truly believed it was their own thought because of how much They had been inundated and had that message reinforced again and again and again and again. And they think it's theirs, but it's not you guys. Most of the thoughts that you think are not yours. So the first step is creating space to truly, just like Isaac Newton sitting under the apple tree, create space of nothingness. When the apple fell from the tree, he thought, what made that apple fall? But it was in the nothingness that the space was created for that thought and then the trajectory of that thought, which became the understanding of gravity that we know today, that catalyzed innovation. You cannot be innovative if your attention span is constantly being hijacked by Facebook, Hmm. Instagram, Snapchat. You're you're literally, at this point, the human psyche has a, a smaller attention span than a goldfish. And that is not because that is your potential. I really want you guys to hear this. That's because you are literally, you are helpless to these addictions at the moment. Mm, And mm. just like any, just like any addiction, 
It's not going to be easy to break it. If I know times in my life where I've had to break addictions, I shared a little bit about my past with you guys on this episode, but the next chapter, the beginning of, of the next chapter for me was literally resigning from all of it and taking a six month journey into some of the most physically challenging things I've ever done. Like, trekking in minus 10 degrees at 30,000 feet altitude through the Andes, like facing all of my deepest fears, um, committed to days of silence in the Amazon jungle um, with one local Sherpa who didn't speak English, you know, sleeping in a hut. I did these things because I knew it was going to take something extreme for me to face myself. Mm. So to think that we can just like, you know, just change whenever we want to. So what I'm hearing, it, it's that, going to, what I'm hearing yeah. in that is a really um, um, intentional and simple, like to simplify that message is, is okay, what are you putting in your mouth? What, like what are you feeding your body? Yeah. Because that's obviously going to be affecting your brain and your wellness. What are you listening to? Like what are you hearing? What and who? What are you looking at? Like literally yeah. evaluating every single thing that's going in every orifice Creates of your things. body and then yeah. literally shut it down, get a blank canvas and then decide, no, 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 how am I going to repaint this canvas? And I, I, I think when people do that and they make the decision to do that, that's when you see people going, I'm quitting this job. I'm not doing yeah. it anymore. I've had enough. I think that's the first step of of anyone going you know what i want the feel canvas how out. good it is feel, feel how good it is to actually reclaim that sovereignty it's not going to take long for you to then once you've had a taste of it if you go back into that noise and into that environment that you don't like and and you start eating the food that actually makes you feel like shit again once you've felt what it feels like to feel clear and to feel good and to feel sovereign, you're going to very quickly realize how toxic all of it is for you. That's amazing. So I want to ask a couple of questions before we finish because this is this is how I like to end it and I know you've got somewhere to be now. Um, yeah. Is talk to me about um, end this sentence. So at my absolute lowest, I felt. Suicidal. And even one step deeper into suicidal. And that was the word that came up and I, I tried to throw it away, but that, that was, that was the truth of what came up. I think, um, just, just completely, um, desperate hate, hate, self-hate. It was just so much self-hate. So at your lowest, it was self-hate. So is it not wanting to be here or not wanting to feel the pain that you're experiencing? Not not feeling like I deserve to be here. So a worthiness. Yeah, and not enoughness. Or just ne never perfect enough, which is is my deepest demon. 
Hmm. Not feeling enough. And then how I got back up from that space, from I'm talking from there. So if, you, if you're taking yourself into that, what you just shared, that unworthiness, not enough, um, don't want to be here. How that's it's that's an incredibly dark place for anyone to be. How do you move from that place, even by a millimeter? God, faith. I actually think faith is the only thing. Faith is the only thing that will will, will take you out of that place. You, you've got to give yourself to something bigger than you. Because at that point, you don't have access to, to anything to get you out of it yourself. So it was in, in those moments that I've crystallized my, my relationship to, to God. And you put it down to your faith. Yeah. That's enormous. And it's almost in this day and age like controversial to say isn't it because everybody has such a massive or a different I I might say belief system so to 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 be saying have faith to somebody that doesn't have faith is it's a big jump it's a massive jump like what do they do what do they do if they have no faith it's a relationship you know it's we don't expect our uh, our partners. We don't expect to have a good relationship with our partner unless we give give them time, you know, and and we let them in and and we ask them questions, or we don't expect to have a good relationship with ourselves unless we have time with ourselves. Um, that force in my life, like it's it's not it. I haven't always conceptualized it in the same way that I do today um as as god like i want to give that authority in my life that respect because there have been times that i know that i wouldn't have survived without without that presence in my life so i'm now at a point in my journey where I, i want to contribute that respect as as god and as as the god of of my life and and all things but there have been times where i didn't have that frame and it was very much just a when I was in the deepest, darkest place of aloneness, I knew I wasn't alone. So it's it's been about building that relationship and not just building that relationship when it's my darkest hour, having the discipline to to pray, even when things are good and be grateful and be, you know, appreciative and um, show respect to that that gives all of us life. You know, there is a source to this life. How could you deny that? There, there is. It's it's inevitable that, that that's true. And so if you want to have a spiritual dimension of your life, you've got to start building a relationship with that. And what I want to know, finally, what does getting back up look like for you? Mm. Um, it means going forward with more humility, more wisdom, more awareness, and a greater sense of integration in, in leadership 
That's getting back up. That's getting back up. That is getting back up. Thank you so much, Nicole, for sharing your innermost feelings, thoughts, ideas. Um, I know when you choose to be the head of an organisation or you call yourself a leader, it comes with this enormous responsibility that you must, you know, deliver and you must meet the expectations of what, you know, a leader should be. Um, So for anyone to call themselves a leader, I think it's incredibly um, courageous because it does carry a very, very, very um, heavy weight. So I just applaud you for putting your, is that the word, applaud, applaud, applaud you for putting yourself front (laughs) and centre for the purpose of actually being of service because I honestly believe that that's, um, that's your intention and that's what's going to um, that's what's going to be your your future path. I can see it. I can just see masses, masses of people just being anchored by your intention. The anchor, that's what comes up for me, that you will anchor people. What a gift. Mm. Thank you. What a uh, gift. Means a lot. Thanks, everybody. Where can everybody see you, follow you, do your everything? (laughs) Find me on social media. Um, My Instagram handle is under Nick Gibson, N-I-C, or my full name for Facebook, and my website, NicoleGibson.com. Thank you so much, Nicole. It's been a pleasure. You're an absolute angel. Mm, Thank you. Thanks, everybody.